Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, my friends, we are in Matthew chapter 13. Would you please pray for the pastor's conference uh, the next three days, certainly tonight, the next three days. Also, as, as uh, Brian pointed out, we have a prayer meeting tonight. Uh, and the prayer meeting is for the entire congregation. It's not just for f- the few leaders or something like that. It's for all of us to come and to pray, support one another in prayer, to be praying for what the Lord is doing and how he's directing. So I'd strongly encourage you, uh, make an effort to be at that. It's at 6 o'clock. It's about an hour in length, and it would be really good. Well, please turn, Matthew chapter 13. My goal was to do the entire chapter today, but that ain't happening. And so we'll just... We'll get as far as we're going to get. As we come to Matthew chapter 13, we're moving into a different period in the ministry of Christ. Really, the the temperature has been turned up. Things are beginning to heat up. There's increasing vocal and physical opposition to the Lord. As we saw last week, the religious leaders are actively now plotting for how they can destroy Jesus, how they can kill Jesus and get him to stop standing in opposition to them. And so we're seeing that more uh, and more. And as a result, Jesus begins to transition his ministry. And as we've been looking, almost exclusively, not, not exclusively, but almost exclusively, he had been ministering to the house of Israel. What we're going to begin seeing now, and the way I describe it is, he begins ministering to the house of whoever would like to listen to him. And so he begins to share more and more with Gentiles. And he begins to reveal this idea that there is an era that is coming, which we have come to know the church, the church age. And so in some respects, Jesus is transitioning his ministry efforts. And he begins to speak to the people, chapter 13 is almost exclusively, in parables. And he begins to tell the people parables. Parables present the truth but they do so in a way where a little bit of investment is going to be required if you're going to receive that truth. So you have to kind of hear the story and you got to kind of you got to give it some little bit of thought and think about it. And so that's where we're going now. A parable is a short story which is designed to illustrate a moral and spiritual lesson. A parable is a short story designed to illustrate a moral and spiritual lesson. And there are over 70 parables that are recorded for us in the four Gospels. Forty of those parables are found in the Gospel of Matthew by itself. And 19, 20 of those parables that are in the book of Matthew are unique to the book of Matthew. They're not mentioned in any of the other three Gospels. So Matthew really kind of hones in on uh, these parables that Jesus uh, is sharing. It's interesting that a third of Jesus' teaching comes in the form of parables, the telling of a story designed to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson. And there's nothing like a story to sort of nail down what you're trying to say and to paint a picture that is memorable for the listener. And I remember as a school teacher, and I would say, all right, here it is. It's two plus two is four. And what's two plus two? Six. You're like, no, come on. You know, and you're trying to tell them, you're trying to tell them, you're trying to tell them, and no one's getting it. Sorry, right, let me tell you a story. And you tell them a story. And then I remember we'd come to test time and people were like, oh yeah, that was with the little girl and the, the butterfly. I remember that story. And that's George Washington was first president. Got it. You know, and it, it all makes sense, you know, or whatever. You tell people a story. Anyway, that's not exactly how it happened. But let's talk about, look at verse 10 for a moment. Verse 10 says this, then the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, as I said, he's going to begin to teach to them in parables. And the disciples, they, they sort of interrupt. And they, they say, so why exactly are we doing it this way? This is a change that you're, going to, you're telling people stories. Why not just lay it out there? Just tell them black and white, A plus B equals C. You know, just put it there. And Jesus will go on to answer the question. We'll look at it very quickly now and more so in a moment. But he essentially says this. I speak to them in parables because of one, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy said I would speak to them in parables. Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 6, so we'll look at that. And then the second thing is what the parable does is masks the truth for those that aren't interested in receiving the truth. Because there's a little bit of investment, as I said, that is required more so than just sort of spelling it out there 
in black and white. And again, we're going to look at that a little more closely as we come to those verses in our study today. But let's begin in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now that same day Jesus went out of the house, and he sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into the boat and he sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he began to tell them many things in parables. So Jesus is in the house. He'd been in the house for a, a while, a number of chapters, teaching. He comes out of that house. He goes down onto the, the seaside there, the shore's edge, teaching. Why get up? Why leave? Why not just stay where you were? You were teaching? Keep teaching. Well, some people see that there's a picture here of the transition of Jesus' ministry. Many times in the scripture, Israel is referred to as the house of Israel. Many times in the scripture, the Gentiles and the Gentile nations are referred to or likened to the sea. And so perhaps there's a picture of him getting up and leaving the house where he was teaching to go out to the sea where he could be teaching. I don't necessarily know if that's the case. It's certainly it's interesting to consider. And whether his intention was specifically to show that picture, we don't necessarily know. But Jesus does begin to emphasize in his teaching more of a teaching to the masses of people and not just to the house of Israel. He begins to teach to the multitude of the nations. And if you go back and you consider the first 11, 12 chapters of Matthew, one of the things that we have seen again and again, Jesus almost limited himself to ministry among the Jewish people. Now, occasionally, you know, a Gentile would be, so to speak, on the outer edges, but his ministry was primarily to the Jewish people or to the house of Israel. It seems as if Jesus gave the Jewish people the right of first refusal. Is that a phrase that you're familiar with? You know, you think of sometimes you have parents or something like that, and, you know, they're getting older and they're, they're going to sell their home. And so oftentimes before they put it on the market, they'll ask their children who grew up in that home that are now adults, and they'll say something like, look, Mom and I were going to sell the house, but we wanted to give you the right of first refusal. Would you like to, to buy and raise your family here? And if you say no, then they open it up to whoever it is that, that's going to pay the amount for the home. And it, it seems as if Jesus in his ministry gave the Jewish people the right of first refusal. And in that respects, now you've got to kind of let your mind kind of go up here a little bit. In that respects, if the Jews had re received it, then we would have leapfrogged all the way to the end of the age where Jesus would reign in his glory here upon the earth. But because the Jews did not receive it, the message went from them and it went to the Gentile people, thus creating the church age and the kingdom of heaven here on the earth that we, you and I are living in, in some respects. Now, of course, and in that way, you could call the church age plan B of God's plan. Now, of course, we know that God doesn't have plan Bs. God's sovereign, and he knew all along. But it is interesting to note that it was the Apostle Paul when talking about the church and the church era, he refers to that as a mystery. Not in the Agatha Christie sense of mystery. We're like, ooh, it's, you know, where's the scary person hiding behind or whatever. But mystery in the sense of something previously unknown. But now that it's told to you, oh, I get it. It makes perfect sense. Paul says this, Ephesians 3. He said, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The church was a mystery. It was something that, you know, people didn't really, the prophets of old or whatever, didn't quite know and understand. But it seems it's, quote unquote, God's plan B. As the Jewish people rejected, the Gentiles then began to receive. And either way, Jesus' ministry now takes a decided turn as we come into Matthew chapter 13. And from now on, much more emphasis is going to be placed on the kingdom age of God's church or the church era, rather than the kingdom age of the millennium, or the kingdom age of God's kingdom uh, descending here on the earth. So with that in mind, let's keep that in mind. So anyway, Jesus gets up, he makes his way down to the seashore, and he begins to teach the crowd. Not the first time that Jesus went to the water's edge to teach the people. We've looked at some examples already. And being at the water's edge or putting himself into a boat a little bit out into the water gives him a little separation from the audience that is gathered, this allows more people to see him. The acoustics would be a little bit improved as the, it goes from the sea out into the land so more people can hear him. And this is exactly what Jesus is wanting, that he can reach to the crowds that can see him and hear him. And so he launches into the first series of parables, starting in verse 3. He says, Now he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, 
And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Verse 5, other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil, and it produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then notice he concludes, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus, in this instance, he doesn't always do this, but in this instance, he will provide us with the interpretation of this particular powerful, uh, parable. And that's found down in verse 18. So we're going to go down there eventually and look at it. And there we're going to learn what the seed is. We're going to learn who the birds are that steal the seed away. We're going to uh, discover some things about the different soils, the rocky ground, the thorny soil, and so on. And we'll look at that when we get to it. But we're grateful for Jesus' interpretation because it takes the guesswork out of interpreting the parables for us. And in a sense, it sort of establishes a blueprint for how we are to look at these parables. And I think you need to be careful when considering the parables, when interpreting the parables, because frankly, with enough imagination, we can get the parables to say anything we want the parables to say. Somebody else told me, and it was Chuck Smith actually, he didn't tell me, he told all of us that were listening to the tape, uh, but he essentially said, look, you could take any children's story and turn that into a gospel message or whatever. And so you could get the parables really to say anything that you want them to say. And so you want to be careful with the parables. I think there are some interpretive guidelines that you should sort of apply to the process of looking at them. I appreciate R.C. Sproul. Many of you know R.C. Sproul. He's a Bible teacher. He's on the radio. Uh, And I think he's a seminary professor because you hear like blackboards, like the chalk on the blackboard. Um, there so he's probably teaching a classroom and they audio tape it and he suggested a number of interpretive guidelines for dealing with parables number one he said this he said don't treat parables like allegories don't treat parables like allegories now an allegory and in an allegory every single detail is designed to communicate a point that's an allegory allegories are kind of fun to look at because you sort of like playing the game I remember I was teaching in high school and I read this uh, article that some folks wrote for their master's thesis. I think they were on drugs when they wrote it, quite frankly. But it, it was basically how the Wizard of Oz is a, an allegory of the Gilded Age or something like that, which was a period of U.S. history. And I read I was like, that's quite interesting. I said, but nobody would think that unless there was alcohol or drugs involved first. You know what I mean? But anyway, I read that and I began to share that with my students when I was teaching Uh, AP history and it it was quite interesting but in an allegory everything is designed to mean something not so in a parable a parable has primarily one main point and so your job is to kind of look for that main point and be careful getting so bogged down into well did you notice there was a grain of sand there what could that grain of sand mean or, or whatever and get so bogged down because you can begin to twist things and start finding things that weren't necessarily meant to be there Sometimes the dusty ground simply means the dusty ground, you know, and it just amplifies the story. So that's the first one. Uh, Parables typically have one central point. The second one is what Sproul calls the rule of two. And the rule of two is to notice that oftentimes in parables, there is either a comparison or a contrast between two key ideas. And so you should look for those as you're, you're digging in. And then the third one, he calls it, look for key words or key phrases. Look for key words or key phrases. So oftentimes you will read in a parable, sort of that transition will be, and how much more, brothers, or something like that. And that's a code word for you or a phrase for you to know, okay, we're transitioning from the picture to the application and the reality of things. So you you look for things, how much more, truly, truly, or verily, verily, it says. You see phrases like, he who has ears to hear, you know, because that's, what do you want me to hear? You know, this is what I want you to hear, and so on. So you got to look for those. Now, I would add a fourth one. This isn't from Sproul, but this is from somewhere else that I've seen this, or I've learned this, and it's a phrase called basically stock imagery. And the idea of stock imagery is in the scriptures, oftentimes, when a picture is being painted, an item is used, and that item, if, if we know that the seed is the word of God, when you're looking at another place and it's talking about the seed, your default should be, well, the seed represents the word of God. 
And so you look at other parables where we know the interpretation of them, or maybe you look at some Old Testament imagery where stories are shared in the Old Testament. And again, the default position should be, if it meant this in one place, it likely means this in this one. So that's where I'm going to start. Now, if it works itself out and you're like, that doesn't mean that at all, well, then you move on from there. But that should be sort of your default. Well, anyhow, some interpretive principles that we will look to apply as we dig into these parables that are beginning now in verse 13. And again, there's not a lot that I, sh- I really want to say about verses 3 through 9 because Jesus is going to interpret it in verses 18 to 23, and he's better at it than I am. So we'll let him do the interpreting when we get there. But let me just lay out the picture that Jesus paints. The first thing we see in verse 3 is that there's a sower and that that sower is going out into the field to sow. Now, we're not talking about people with thread and needle sowers. I don't even think that's the right term for them. We're talking about folks that are taking seed and they're sowing it into the ground, planting it into the ground. So you have a sower and you have a field in which they're sowing. As the sower sows, we see in verse 4, that some of the seed lands on the pathway, but notice it's quickly eaten up by the birds. We see in verse 5 that some of the other seed that the sower sows lands on the rocky ground. It springs up a little bit initially, but it quickly withers away under the scorching sun, the scripture says. And then in verse 7, we see that there's some seed that is planted among the thorn bushes. And it does begin to grow, But as we see there, it's soon choked of its life source, uh, and it dies. And then finally, verse 8, there's a bit of seed that falls in the very perfect environment. Jesus calls it the good soil. And not only does that soil take root, or that uh, seed take root, but it begins to produce a great harvest there. And again, Jesus is going to provide us the interpretation starting in verse 18, so we'll wait we get there. But I want you to just notice this before we we move on to verse uh, 10. Notice how Jesus concludes the parable because he says in verse 9, and I think this is a key in his explanation of the parables and our understanding of them. In verse 9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, it sounds a little weird. Like, what? Like, I'm, I'm sure the vast majority of people that were standing in front of them had ears, probably two of them, you know, were there. So Jesus, and they weren't deaf. That means they, they heard what he had to say. So Jesus is not referring to physical hearing. All right, anybody with physical hearing, hear what I have to say. That's not what he's referring to. To have ears to hear is not necessarily to physically hear something and be able to regurgitate, now what did I just say? Regurgitate it back to you, but rather to have sort of spiritual ears to hear behind what is being said. That is to find the spiritual significance in the words that Jesus is giving ears to hear. So now we go to verse 10, and the disciples come and they say, why the parables? Now we might ask the same thing. Jesus, why speak in code? Just lay it out there. Don't you wish that there was a page in the Bible that just laid everything everybody needs to know to get through life with, you know, and there was that one page, and tell me about salvation. There it is. And tell me about suffering in the world. There it, and there was that one place that you could go to. The, it was just so very clear, and then nobody would have any ability to say, well, I don't get it, or whatever. It's right there. Turn to page 404, or whatever. We don't have that. And so there are things in the Scripture you've got to dig in. There are times, you know, we could dig in all our lives into the Bible and still come back and say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why there's suffering in the world the way it is, and though God can, he doesn't, you know, step in in certain instances. There's just times we have to say, I don't know. And so here, we, they're asking these parables, and Jesus says, well, this is the reason I speak to them in parables. Starting in verse 11, he says, he answered them, well, to you, to the disciples that had come to him, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why, he says, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now it's been said that the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. And for our purposes, the connection is the very same message of the gospel can have the opposite effect of hardening some while breaking the hearts, which is good, softening the hearts of others. We see the gospel has the ability to soften the humble, honest heart that is open to receive and repent, 
while at the same time hardening the proud and the arrogant heart that refuses to be moved. Now, there was one commentator, and I'm not really sure if I fully buy into this, but I'll present it to you for your consideration. It makes sense to me. But there's one commentator that suggested that Jesus taught this mixed audience of believers and unbelievers, that he taught this mixed audience in parables, and that that was an act of mercy on his part. Because if he presented it straight and clear, A plus B equals C, and put it right out there, and they rejected it as they were prone to do, it would add another layer of hardness and another layer of hardness and another layer of hardness. And the commentator's suggestion is by putting it in parabolic form, what he is doing, he's throwing it out there and it's an act of mercy on his part that the heart doesn't necessarily harden over to it. I don't necessarily know if that is the case. It seems to make a little bit of sense. But we do know this, that through the use of parables, the truth of the kingdom is being revealed to some while it is being concealed from others and that that is by God's design. Jesus also indicates in verse 14 that another reason why he is speaking to them in parable is because it's a fulfillment of another prophecy. And so he quotes Isaiah chapter 14, which loosely translated says this, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never uh, perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull and with their ears They can barely hear, their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. Now the quote comes from Isaiah chapter 6. And it speaks there in Isaiah chapter 6 of the hardness of heart and the dullness of senses that was coming in Isaiah's day. Now Isaiah chapter 6, obviously the beginning of the book, there's 66 chapters in the book. Isaiah was prophesying to the northern kingdom of the house of Israel. Remember, Israel had been divided. The ten tribes to the north are called Israel. Two tribes to the south are called Judah. And Isaiah is prophesying to those of the house of Israel in the north. And they were a people that had continually gone back to their false idols and their false gods and began to worship those things. And God would raise up prophets for 300 years that would come and they would say, what are you doing? You can't do this. Stop it. And the people would repent, and they'd kind of get their act together, and then 10 years, 20 years, a generation would go by, and they'd go right back into their worship of these false idols or whatever. And Isaiah comes on the scene just about at the end of that, where God's about to bring a judgment. And it was in 722 B.C. that God sends a judgment against the people of the north in the form of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians come in, and they take captive the Jewish people, and they lead them into captivity. And the passage there, in Isaiah chapter 6, he's speaking to a people one more time, calling them to repent. Repent of the worship of these false gods. What are you doing? Judgment is going to come. This is a big mistake. And and the people were growing dull to that, hard to that. I heard that all the time. My mom used to tell me that. My dad used to tell me, I used to go to church when I was a kid. They're becoming hardened to those things. Isaiah references it. In Jesus' day, he's saying that these uh, religious leaders that are in front of me, that are saying that the work I'm doing is the work of Satan, that are say, well, give us a sign and we'll believe when I've just given you 50 other signs, even raising people from the dead. He's saying that the same hardness of heart and dullness of senses is coming upon those people as well. It's been said that the heart that refuses to believe soon develops into a heart that cannot believe. Catch that. The heart that refuses to believe soon develops into a heart that cannot believe. And we saw an example of that. I pointed out an example of that before with Pharaoh in the days of Moses. And Moses would come into Pharaoh and Pharaoh would see the miracle and he would say, you know what, you're right. I give up. Go do what you got to do. And then, you know, that night would go by, the next day, whatever. He said, you know, I changed my mind. You see, initially he saw, initially for a moment he believed, but he quickly kind of refused to believe. And soon as we see, as we move along in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh becomes a man who cannot believe. And so may I just suggest to you, as you sit here this morning, every time the word of God goes forth in your life, whether it's from a situation like this or you're sitting at home with the word or you turn it on in the car or whatever it may be, every time that the word goes forth, 
your response to that is significant. Because if you reject and say, well, yeah, I know that. And particularly as a believer, I think we do this. God, I'm following you on 99 other things. Do I really have to follow you on all 100 things? You know, or whatever. We think that we sort of earned, I could take one off or whatever it may be. But every time we refuse to believe what God is saying, we run the risk of being unable to believe what God is saying. And a hardness setting in in our lives. And it's nowhere that any of us as his children want to believe. I believe God will break through, but that's pretty painful sometimes, isn't it? And so we want to be quick to listen and quick to believe. Now, contrasted with the unseeing, unbelieving Jewish leaders are those that did see, did hear, and did understand. And we see them in verse 16. Jesus said, but blessed are your eyes, for they see in your ears, for they hear. These guys over here don't believe. These guys over here do. Same words, same message, same parable, and yet some see while others remain in their spiritual blindness. And these guys, Jesus said, you are blessed because your spiritual eyes and your spiritual ears have been opened. And because they had been, you're able to understand. Jesus continues in verse 17. He says, truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so you go back into your Old Testament, Adam and Abraham and Moses and Samuel, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and scores of other men and women of the faith for the thousands of years leading up to the Lord Jesus, they looked forward sort of into a foggy haze of the day that a Messiah would come. And so you take an Adam or an Abraham or a prophet Samuel or or Ezekiel, one of those guys, and you'll say, tell me about the Messiah. And they would say, well, we're a little foggy on all the details, but these are sort of the things we know. And they would sort of paint this picture for you to the best of their ability. Sometimes they would see things that didn't make any sense to them, but in faith they just said, look, I don't even know what this means, but I'll, I'll put it out there and I'll let you guys pray about it and what it means. But for these disciples, whereas those prophets look forward into sort of a fog, trying to understand what God was doing and what it was going to actually look like, these disciples, it's right there in front of them. It's not foggy. You know, I compared it to, it's like HD quality TV. I remember when my father-in-law got one of these $5,000 TVs or whatever they were when they first came out, and it was hanging on the wall. I honestly thought for a moment that there was a golf match taking place outside on his lawn because it looked like I was looking out a window how clear it was, the quality of it. I did think that. And he lives at the beach. I was like, this is weird. Look at the grass, or whatever it may be. So anyway, you understand? So, uh, indeed, that is a blessing for them, that they're able to just see so clearly, sit and listen before the Messiah, and they're blessed, he says. Now we move on. Let's get to the interpretation. It starts in verse 18. Jesus says, well, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, And does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That, this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And finally, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And so, again, Jesus takes the guessing game out of our attempt to understand the parable by explaining the parable to us. And he begins by saying, hear then the parable of the sower. Now you'll notice uh, on your little blue page there or on the screen, I've entitled today's sermon, The Parable of the Soils. Because honestly, I think the key in this parable is not the sower and it's not the seed, but it's the soil. The soil is what makes all the difference in the outcome of the seed being sown. That being said, Jesus himself calls it the parable of the sower, and so who am I to change the name of it? But nonetheless, really what we're going to see, that this is going to be about the soils. And Jesus answers some questions that we may not have even been asking, 
But he says, let me tell you what some of these things represent. The first one begins in verse 9, and he defines for us what the seed is. Uh, Verse 19, I should say. And in verse 19, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown. So what we see is that the seed is the word of God or the word of the kingdom of God. Look in verse 20 and 21 there. It says, who hears the word. It says that on account of the word. Verse 22, who hears the word or chokes out the word. And then in verse 23, in the good soil, the one who hears the word. So the seed is the word of God. Jesus tells us in verse 19 what the soil is that the seed is being sown into. The first example of that. And he tells us there in the verse that the different soil represents different people's, the condition of different people's hearts. And so if we look in verse 19, notice there it says, and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. In the story, it was sown into soil. In the interpretation, the soil represents the heart. And when we refer to a person's heart, we're referring to the very center of their being. We might use words interchangeably like their mind, the renewing of their mind. We might use words like their soul, the soul of a person. And we simply mean who they are at the deepest places of their being. When the, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's referring to the inner core of a person, their thoughts, their feelings, their desires, their will, the choices that they make, all those things that sort of make up who they are. So we know that the seed is the word, and we know that the soil is a person's heart. And the only other key f- figure or character that is in this story that we need to draw our attention to is, well, who's the sower before we can move on? Now, Jesus never reveals who the sower is. I think a lot of times we presume that the sower is him. But the sower doesn't have to be Jesus. The sower could be anybody that is sowing the seed or teaching the word of God or sharing the gospel message with other people. That's the sower. So you have the seed, you have the soil, and you have the sower. Let's consider the purpose of this parable. The first thing I want you to take notice of is this, that the sower doesn't change throughout the parable. Same sower. The seed doesn't change throughout the parable. The sower and the seed remain constant throughout the story. What changes is the condition of the soil that the sower sows the seed into. And it has a drastic effect on the success of that seed and sort of the harvest that that seed will produce. And I think that's important for us to note because as we go out to sow the seed, it's good for us to remember, you know, the results don't lie with me. You know, so as you share the gospel, I think one of the reasons why a lot of us, many times we we don't want to share the gospel with people is because we have before and the people rejected us or they didn't respond or they weren't convinced. And so we say, well, I'm just not good at it. And so I'll leave that to guys like Eric Leidick and Kevin and, you know, and other people because, oh, boy, they're, they're good at it. They're gifted. I'm not good at it, so I, I just won't share the gospel. Because we've had, we didn't have past successes. But the reality is the success of the seed doesn't rely on the sower. Our job is just to simply be faithful. Now, I do believe there are things that you can do to help yourself be more effective in communicating the gospel message. And you can learn what the gospel message is and what it isn't. And what a lot of people are sharing as the gospel message, that's not really the gospel. And so you can do some things to be more effective. Maybe you can learn some strategies of, you know what, here, here the, the, what's the word? Uh, this is what people are going to come back with. And they're just going to say this argument, this argument, this argument. And you can learn some answers to those particular arguments. And, and that certainly helps you to be more effective. But to some degree, it really doesn't, well, not to some degree, it doesn't lie with the sower. To some degree, it doesn't even lie with the seed itself. I, I certainly want to be careful because we know that the seed is the word of God and in the word of God is life. But the seed is constant throughout. And so we don't use different seed for different soil. And sometimes you see this, you know, and so people will go to the boardwalk and there's a lot of young people at the boardwalk. And so then they'll try and get all hip and kind of cool and find out what the young people want to hear or whatever. And then they talk to old people like Natasha here, you know, and just teasing, just kidding. And, you know, they'll talk to older folks and they'll be like, well, how can I, how can I modify my message to be more effective with this different demographic? And that's a mistake to do so. 
you know, oftentimes you hear people saying things like, well, look, the church needs to keep up with changing times. Changing message for changing times. And if we don't change, people aren't going to come anymore. Within a generation, the church is going to die out. Can I just suggest this to you? When you water down the word of God, you dilute the power of the word of God. And so then you go, thank you, uh, somebody over there, thank you. And then you go and you share it with someone, and you share sort of this watered down, surfacy, I don't want to offend anybody kind of message, and then there's no impact in their life, and they're like, yeah, well, I heard the Christian message. And then you wonder why there's no change in the person's life, why there was no conviction, because you haven't really given them the gospel. Told them that there's a God that exists and that he loves you. That's not the gospel. There is a God that exists and he does love you, but there's a whole lot more to the gospel. And so we need to be careful that we're not changing the word of God for the so-called changing times because what it does is it dilutes the, the power of the word of God. The key to whether or not the seed is going to take root and grow is not in how skilled the sower is, but it's in the soil. And so if the soil is hard and trodden down, like it says there in verse 19, like the soil that would be on the pathway, well, then the seed has no chance to penetrate that soil. And as he says, the evil one comes and snatches away the word of God. If the soil, verse 20, is shallow and rocky, it might penetrate it a little bit, but it doesn't really have any ability to take root and to be strong and to grow and bear fruit because of that. And so as he says there in the verse, it'll break the surface a little bit, but as soon as challenges comes its way, come its way, it soon withers away. We see a third soil that Jesus presents is what he describes as a patch of ground that is filled with thorns. And there, the seed takes root. It grows up even a little bit. But what we see is that all of its energy is spent trying to fight off the thorns instead of producing fruit, which is what it is designed to do. And Jesus points out for us that the thorns are as he says in verse 22, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And then finally in verse 23, there's a soil that Jesus simply calls good soil. And good soil, that is a person that hears the word, that understands the word, and begins to grow and bear fruit as a result of the word entering in. Again, notice in these four examples, same seed, totally different results. And again, the seed, which is the word of God, is constant throughout. Who the sower is in this story is, isn't even really important to us. And I find this really interesting. In, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul sort of has an aside that you might just kind of read through quickly. But you've got to look at it and you've got to think about it for a second. Now, what's going on there? And, and in there, Paul shares the fact that when he would go into certain cities, he encountered some in those cities that were not believers. Check this here. Listen to this. This is a good one. This isn't like a, I'll tune out for a minute. Listen to this. So where he, there were people in those cities, unbelievers, that knew that if they preached the gospel in that city, they would get Paul into further trouble with the authorities of that city. These are unbelievers, but they're trying to get Paul in trouble. And Paul says, well, what do I care what their motives are? as long as the gospel goes forth. And I think that's great. I love the way that the picture that Joe Foch painted. Joe is a pastor of Calvary Philly. And he paints this picture of a guy that is at sort of like a family party and you're there at the family party and you're a believer and you're telling him that God loves him and Jesus wants to do a good work in his life and he can forgive him of his sins. And you're sharing, you know, the message of the gospel with this guy. And finally, the guy storms out of the house. I'm sick of it, I'm tired. And he goes down to the local bar. And he's sitting there at the edge of the bar, and Jimmy, you know, the bartender is behind the bar. There's another guy sitting down there. And here this guy is grumbling and complaining, and I family, and I got this cousin, and he's telling me, Jesus loves me. Jesus will forgive me, and Jesus will wash me of my sins. And he's preaching the gospel, though he doesn't know it. And there's this other guy over here down in some alcohol, whatever it may be, who hears the message and turns him and crying and said, do you mean it? Does Jesus really love me? And will he really forgive me? And will he really wash me of my sins? And, you know, so Paul's saying, what do I care how the gospel goes forth? As long as it goes forth. There's really not even the sower, but it's the soil. That makes all the difference in the yield. Now, let me make application of this passage for our purposes today. Now, I believe specifically the reason why Jesus brings it up at this instance is because he's making a contrast, remember, compare and contrast, between the hard-hearted religious leaders 
and these disciples that are willing to receive. So I believe he's making a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. And in context, it applies to those that did receive and those that would not receive. But that being said, I do think that this passage of Scripture can also apply to our lives as believers here this morning. So really, at the end of these parables, every one of the people that were listening to Jesus or listening today as we gather to read it or read it on our own, at the end of each parable, we really should be asking ourselves this question, or in particular this one, Lord, what's the condition of my heart? Which of those soils in this instance of my life best represents where I am with you? And I think it's a good question for us to consider. You may recall a few weeks back that I read a verse for for you from uh, Proverbs chapter 4. And Proverbs 4 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for for from it flow the springs of life. Now, I like the way that the NIV words this. It says this, because I think it just says, boy, I understand what you mean now. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from your heart. You see that word there, above all else? What's the most important thing in your life that you can devote yourself to? It's guarding your heart. For from your heart flows everything else that comes from it. And here again, the soil is likened to the heart. And so I wonder, are there things that we can be doing to create the very best environment for the seed of God's word to become planted and take root? Are there things that we can be doing and perhaps things that we could not be doing to create the very best environment. As we saw, the first soil is the soil of the pathway. And as we see with that soil, it is so hard, it's almost like cement. The seed has no ability to penetrate. It just sort of lies there right on top of the ground that you threw it on. And as the passage says, the evil one comes in, these birds, like a bird, comes in and snatches away the word. Now, if you're a believer, I don't think that soil describes you because the word's got to get in there to some degree, but it certainly may describe someone that you love and care about. And Paul, he describes what Jesus is showing in a picture. He describes it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul says that the God of this world, and we know that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. As Jesus, he makes the explanation of the evil one coming and snatching away the word of God. Paul says that the evil one has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever. And so you could present the message clear as day. And who would not want to receive that message? I'm a sinner against the holy God, and there's a coming judgment that is coming my way. But that holy God, for who knows why, we know it's because he loves us, but no benefit to himself, would give his own life that I could be forgiven. Ah, I'm not interested. What are you talking about? Well, because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever. Satan has no desire to see people come to the knowledge of the truth. We learn from Revelation chapter 20, we learn what is the future for Satan. It it reads this way, it says, And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan, according to Revelation chapter 20, has been condemned to a future of torment, day and night, forever and ever. And knowing that reality, his goal is to bring as many people with him as possible. Now, there are a lot of people that say, well, that sounds awesome. Partying with Satan in hell, I can't wait. You know, and the highway to hell songs. And we have this idea that hell's going to be some great party. You know, I don't want to go sit with a bunch of angels on, with wings on clouds. I want to party with the devil in hell. It's not what hell's going to be like at all. Hell is not a party, as many suggest that it is. But hell is a place of alienation and regret. And every person that is and will be in hell will for the rest of eternity regret their decision to reject God's grace and God's mercy and God's gift of salvation. That's hell. And Satan, he's going there and wants to bring as many people that he possibly can with him. And so he blinds the hearts of unbelievers so that they cannot see the truth. 
so to speak. The heart is hardened over so that the word cannot penetrate. And so my application for us in this room is this. If you are busy about the job of evangelism, sharing your faith with other people, desiring to see your family members, your parents, your loved ones, your kids, your co-workers, the guy that's across the street, your neighbor, everybody that you come in contact if you're with, if you're desiring to see them come to the Lord, you must remember this reality that evangelism is a spiritual battle. Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if you've been trying to share your faith with people that you care about and you're finding that it seems as if your efforts are going nowhere, the solution is not in more intense efforts. The solution is not in more skilled efforts, but the solution is in the plowing up of that ground, that the heart is plowed up so that it's ready to receive. So be reminded from this that this is a spiritual battle and so commit yourself in the battle to be praying for that coworker, that family member, your, that friend of yours, your son or your daughter. For many of us, our parents. Be praying that their hearts would be open to receive and to repent. That's the first soil. The second soil starts in verse 20 and 21. Jesus calls it the rocky ground. And as you see there in the verse, which we read a number of times already, initially the person receives the word, is quite enthusiastic about having received the word. They actually list it there as it says, receive the word with joy. But sadly, as a result of life's trials and difficulties, that person falls away. Now, those phrase, that phrase there, falls away, it could be translated collapses under the pressure. Collapses under the pressure. Every one of us is going to have trials and difficulties in this life. And those trials and those difficulties, they could either be for our good and for our benefit, and God can use them to build us up, or they can cause us to collapse under the pressure, so to speak. When I was coaching high school soccer, uh, the, the girls would come back in, in early August, and you could tell very quickly who spent their summer at the beach and who spent, sent, spent their summer doing what I asked them to do, running and get ready here. And oftentimes, first day of tryouts, particularly with the freshmen, we'd have like 70 kids come out. And then on the second day of tryouts, it'd be about 50 kids. And then on the third day, it'd be about 30 kids or whatever. And you begin to weed yourself out because the difficulties of going out there and trying to train at this high level, it weeded certain people out. And so the pressures can be good for us. It can get you ready for competition. Or the pressures that can have a negative effect on us, causing us to collapse under the pressure. Now, in this story here, I don't know if this person is an actual believer or not. I s and again, I don't know if we need to break it down this far. Again, what's the key point of the parable? The key point of the parable is that there's an ideal that God has for every one of our lives, that the word of God would go in and that it would bear much fruit. That's the key point of the parable. So don't lose track of that. But as we sort of take ourselves and we begin to work back, is the pathway soil, is that a believer? Is the rocky soil believer? Is the thorny soil believer? The good soil obviously is a believer. And I don't really know if we know the answer to this necessarily as to whether this guy here, the, the rocky soil, is actually a believer or not. What we do know is this. He's not experiencing or she is not experiencing the ideal of what God would have for them, that the word of God would go in and take root and bear much fruit. They're not measuring up to that. And so with that being said, I believe there's application that can be made to our lives as well. What was it that caused them to fall away or to collapse under the burden? It was life's pressures. And so for you and I, I wonder, are you about to collapse under the burden? There are some things in life that are just too difficult for us to bear on our own as individuals. Now, we do know this from the Scripture. Ultimately, all of us are told that we are to cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties upon the Lord because the Lord cares for us. And so we do that. We cast our burdens on the Lord. But the Lord also works in a very natural way as he accomplishes the supernatural. And so this process of the burdens being relieved from us isn't just something that takes place in prayer. 
because the Lord sometimes works in very natural ways to accomplish the supernatural. And one of those very natural ways that God works is when our brothers and sisters in the faith come alongside of us and share our burdens. So Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, he says, it's a command. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so a very natural way that we keep ourselves, if you will, from buckling under the pressure of life is by sharing the burdens with a bunch of people. And I, I remember this thing I saw on YouTube, and it was a guy, he was doing like a power lift. And it, the, the weight, well, I was like 10 million pounds. I don't know what it was. But it, it was already up here, and he just had to lift it up and hold it above his head with his arms straight. And he got up there, and he's doing one of these, and then all of a sudden, his leg just buckled. Like, I know. I was like, oh, let me see that again, you know, or whatever. You know, but his leg just, it couldn't anymore. Now, you put 20 guys, 30 guys, 40 guys holding that thing up with them, and all of them would have been fine because they bear the weight together. And so I just wonder this. Do you do that in, in other people's lives? Do you help other people bear the burden of life and the challenges of life? If you're a part of the church, you're called to do that. You're commanded to do that. Not just this church, but the Christian church. But I would also add, if you're a part of this church, that's what it means to be a part of this church, that we share life together. And there are sometimes you're going through something and you're kind of flo- um, cruising along and everything's great. Oh, well, now's the time to dig in and help some other people a little bit more and vice versa. So bear one, another, one another's burdens. But let me throw this out there as well because I see this in my own life as well. I'm sure in some of your lives as well. I particularly see it in a lot of men. And that is, and let me ask this, the question this way, do you allow other people to bear your burdens? Because a lot of times as men, we don't, uh, I'm fine. I don't need any help. Everybody just stay out of my way kind of thing. And I can do it myself. You know, there was a philosophy that has sort of become ingrained into the American culture. I'm not sure it's still a part of our American culture, but at one point in time, it was championed in the American culture, and it was called rugged individualism. Rugged individualism. And the the idea was we essentially magnified the person that pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. I can do it, and I don't need anybody's help, and I'm going to be a hard worker, and I just work hard enough or whatever, and I'll get the job done or whatever. And so this idea of rugged individualism is ma- was magnified in our culture for a period of time. I don't know if it's still in our culture. I suspect it's not. You know, everybody just, you, know, you do it for me kind of thing. But I will say this. It, it really is to have no place in the life of the Christian because we're not called to be rugged individualist. We're not called to be pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of people. I can bear the burden. I don't need anyone's help. I don't need to share with anyone what's going on in my life. I don't need anyone else's support or whatever. That's a mistake in the Christian walk. We do need one another. And the burden is too great to bear because inevitably the rugged individualist will succumb and collapse under the pressure. And so men, you need other men that are seeking to run the, the race well to share life's burdens with. Ladies, you need other ladies that have their eyes fixed on heaven. And even though they, as they go about the daily tasks of life and accomplishing work and all that's involved with that, they're running the race well. You need those people in your life if you're going to run the race, race well. Students, the burden is too great for you to bear on your own. The pressures of living for Jesus in this fallen world, which is spiraling even further and further and further down, it seems every day, will eventually press you down to the point where your knees buckle. You need one another. And so we encourage our students to get involved with youth or or things like that in the youth group. All of us. We need to get ourselves connected. Now, some church call that small groups. Some call it accountability groups. Some call it cell groups or life groups. Whatever you want to call it, do it. Every one of us, we need to have a group of people in our lives that know us well, They can read it on our faces. They will call us and they'll check in on us and say, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Is there anything that you need from me or whatever? We need those people in our lives. And so I'd encourage you, if you find yourself as a rugged individualist, stop it. As Bob Newhart says, stop it. I don't know if you've seen that. Look it up. It's hilarious or whatever. But we need to stop it. If you're taking notes and writing down Bob Newhart, stop it. Stop that. All righty. 
That's not what you should be writing notes about. Well, there's one more, third soil. And I believe the third soil does pertain to believer, but I guess an argument can, can be made that it doesn't. And the reason why I think that this one seems to a little more pertain to the believer is because it takes root and a plan is actually uh, developed and formed. But what you notice is, once again, the main point of the parable, the less than ideal is taking place in this, per- in this person's life here. Because, yes, the plant grows up, but the plant, there's no fruit on the plant. It's choked out, as Jesus says there, by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And believer or unbeliever, I would say this, every one of us run the risk of having the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches hindering the fruitfulness of what God desires to do in our lives. One thing that I have found, the older that I get in my life, the, the more responsibilities that I begin to incur. Do you remember when you went home, with, if you have kids, with your baby? You're thinking, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. Like they're going to let me take this thing home or whatever, you know, and you go home with the baby or whatever, and the responsibilities are just magnified. And the older you get, the more responsibilities you get. Oftentimes, particularly in our culture, maybe a little more money you happen to have in your pocket, and every dollar is not necessarily going somewhere, and so you can make some decisions about extra money, if you will, that you have. Every part of that, as it increases, the more likely I am of running the risk of this unpleasant reality of the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world choking out the work that God wants to do. Now, of course, we all have responsibilities. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus is saying, throw those responsibilities out the door and just walk with me or whatever. Paul will say a little bit later on in the New Testament, he will basically call someone that doesn't care for their elderly mom or, he says, parents, he'll basically call them an infidel, an unbeliever. You should be ashamed of yourself. Please don't tell anyone, well, i got to do God's work. I can't go help mom or whatever it may be. You know, so we have responsibilities. And to not deal with those responsibilities is sinful. You know, Paul will say in another place, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's straightforward, isn't it? You know, we, I was talking to a guy today, and somebody came mooching, if you will. I'm not sure that's the best word. But anyway, somebody said, hey, man, could I have 10 bucks or whatever? And so he said, I'm going to get here. And he was cutting a lawn. He said, here, here's a weed whacker. Weed whack the property, and I'll give you 10 bucks when you're done. I appreciate that. I really do. I could have just given you the money. And if you're physically able to do it, then you can help me out too. You know, we'll get this job solved uh, together. But anyway, we have responsibilities. All of us do. And we have to meet those. So Jesus is not counseling us to shirk those responsibilities. But may I say this, please? That doesn't mean we need to pile up more and more and more responsibilities. And many times I think that's what we do. I believe there's a place for your kid to join the scouts or to play a sport or something like that. But does she really need to join the scouts and play soccer and softball and take piano lessons and attend tutoring for the SAT exam? Does she need to really do all of that at the same time in the same season? The kid's in kindergarten, for crying out loud. Does she really need all of those things? Surely, surely she doesn't. But oftentimes we say, but Sally Jones's kid is doing all of those things. And if Sally Jones's kid is, I got to keep up with Sally Jones. I don't even know who Sally Jones is or how Sally Jones is doing in her spiritual walk. How's Sally doing spiritually? How's Sally's kid doing spiritually? And I would suspect and suggest to you that Sally and her kid are not doing very well because there's no time for Sally and her kid to be investing into their spiritual life. What they've done is they've allowed the cares of this world, many of which they've brought on themselves, to crowd out the things of the Spirit. Sure, we have cares. But I think we need to be careful that we don't pack our lives with so much of those cares that we choke out what God wants to do in each of our lives. Now, Jesus also talks about not just the cares of the world, but the deceitfulness of riches. We see that in verse 22. And let me throw this out there. And I think a lot of people would say, did he say that right? Maybe not you folks, but people in the world might say, did he say that as he wanted to say it? So let me throw it out there. Having great wealth is not always a blessing. Having great wealth is not always a blessing. Now, many of you probably are thinking, well, let me try it out, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know if it is or not. But the fact is that riches often, often deceive us into thinking that this world is our home. 
world. We know this world is not our home. Heaven is our home. But what riches have the ability to do is let us grow pretty comfortably here on the earth. And what that does is it causes us to lower our gaze from heaven because there's some really sweet little shiny thing over here. And boy, that little thing over there, I love that. I can't wait to get to that or whatever it may be. And soon we become enamored by the temporal things of the earth. What riches can do, they don't have to, but what they can do is to, to deceive us into thinking that the here and now is all that really matters and that it's all that will ever matter. And they choke out the spiritual work that God wants to do in our lives. Now, I'm not saying you need to go and liquidate all your assets and give all your cash away, although Jesus does tell a guy to do that in Matthew chapter 19. And we'll look at that and we'll explain why he tells him to do that and not other people to do that. But if God is telling you to do that, then do it. But what I'm saying is this. Make sure that you can answer this question the proper way. Do your riches possess you or do you possess your riches? Do your riches have control over your life or do you have control over your riches? Are your riches used for the goodness of the kingdom of God? Or do they possess you in such a way where, you know, oh yeah, you like that? You want that nice thing, that shiny thing? Just got to work another 10 hours this week. The next thing you know, you're working another 20 hours this week and you're working for your riches instead of your riches working for you. And then the latter is true, then the deceitfulness of riches are crowding out the work that God wants to do in your life. Don't let them do that. Don't let it do that. Now, there's one last seed or set of seed, one last soil, and that is, as it says there, the good soil. And this good, I'll read it to you. It says, it's the one who hears and understands the word. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And that's God's design for each of our spiritual lives, that we would bear much fruit and produce a great yield. Now, you might hear this and say, well, what's the fruit that God wants to produce in my life? Well, the Bible calls a lot of things fruit in the Bible. And I think it could be all of these things. Ultimately, the fruit is God's work in your life. In Romans chapter 1, Paul references the fruit of a person's ministry, the harvest of a person's ministry. That's people. And so fruit could be you're sharing the, the gospel with other people and people respond. And so you, you see some fruit in your life, winning people to Christ. We read in Colossians chapter 1 that the good works that we do as a result of God's good work in our lives, that that's fruit. And so as you get busy about serving the Lord just because God served me in such a great way, I'm going to serve him, that's fruit in your life. And so we see that there. God wants to do that. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about the praise that comes from our lips as a result of the goodness of God and the work that God has done in our lives, he calls that fruits, uh, fruit, I should say. And then finally, we all, many of us, I'm sure, are familiar, Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. It's the character that God is forming in your life. And as you walk with the Lord over a period of time, God begins to change you and make you more into the image of his son. And that's the fruit of God's seed being poured into your life and, and bearing fruit. And so there are a lot of things, if you will, that could be fruit of God's work in our lives. But that's God's ideal for every one of us, that his word would enter in and it would produce fruit in each of our lives, yielding a great harvest, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, whatever it might be. So whether it's good works, it's the praise of our lips, it's the character that's built it up in us, his ideal is that the word would be planted, that the word would be received, and that we would be changed, and that fruit would be produced as evidence of that change. That's what God wants for you. And so I would encourage you, maintain a soft heart. Discover those things in your life that may have the negative effect of hardening your heart, choking out whatever goes into your heart and put those things take steps of faith and put those things out of your life so that when the word has the ideal environment when you come and sit in a place like this when you go to your favorite chair at home and you sit and you open up the word in the morning to receive it pray that the lord would plow up that ground so that it's best able to receive what god wants to give to you so that you leave a changed person when you come out of that time of prayer or study would you agree with that amen all right let's pray father we thank you and Lord, we're grateful for this reminder about gardening our, guarding our hearts. 
Again, I just like the way the NIV said it. Lord, above all else, the most important thing you can do is guard your heart because from it springs everything else. And so, Lord, we ask that as your believers, as uh, children of God, that you would teach us what that means. Lord, maybe you'd uh, expose areas where we have been neglecting to do so. Lord, you'd put your finger on places maybe that are hindering that from happening. And Lord, in faith, we would respond and we'd come and say, you know what, Lord, just do it. Take it away. Lord, our desire is to bear much fruit. Lord, we want people to look at our lives and see Jesus. We want your character to be built in us, as Paul talks about in Galatians. Lord, we want to do see, we do want to see lives come to know the gospel as a result of our ministry efforts. Lord, we do want continually that the praises of our lips, that the attitude of our hearts would be continually one of praise to you for the good work that you've done within us. And so, Lord, this morning we submit ourselves in a really fresh way to you. Lord, we just come and we lay ourselves down one more time on your altar and say, I'm yours. Work in me. Do what you need to do through me. Minister to others. And Lord, we believe that that attitude of heart is very pleasing to you. And it's a perfect environment for the great harvest to be produced. And so, Lord, we present ourselves in a fresh way in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.